2: Plus. Welcome to the Mike to New Haven podcast with sports personality Mike Cologne. Here's your host, Mike Cologne. Hey, hey, hey,
0: hey. Oh, yeah, we got all the time.
1: You're listening to The email inside the NYPD's emergency service unit. Bad boys, what do you want, what you want, what you gonna do, when the sugar don't come for you? Tell me, in. what you gonna do, what do you gonna
0: do? Yeah, bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do, what do you gonna do when they come? Now, give no Police now, give no freaks. That's all old soldier, man. I give you no freaks. That's a good I'm not giving you no freaks. Bad boys, bad boys. Oh, what you gonna do? Oh, what you gonna do when they come for you? Bad boys, bad boys. Oh, what you gonna do?
3: This special edition of Cops was filmed with cooperation of the New York City Transit Police. All suspects are presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law.
1: I'm probably going to get a copyright strike for that, but I don't care. It was worth it. (laughs) Or a claim, at least. They usually put claims, not strikes. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Mike Haven Podcast. This is episode 191, the E-Men inside the NYPD's emergency service unit. Volume 16, if you haven't checked out the previous episode, that was yesterday. It's a rare back-to-back show. I, d- I don't normally do shows Thursday, but that's how the schedule worked out. Volume 20 of the best of the bravest interviews with the FTNY's elite, Lieutenant Robert Rocky LaRocco, excuse me, yeah, Robert Rocky LaRocco, who was a veteran, of rescue two for many years, in squad 41 in special operations. Great career for him, 39 years on the job, so it was cool talking with him, and it'll be cool talking with my next guest, who saw New York City from an underground angle. Riding and hiding as an OG member of the former New York City Transit Police. If you were in transit and you wanted to be a rescue cop, of course, EMRU was the place for you, Emergency Medical Rescue, Unit. I'm referring to, and that's where he went in the fall of 1987. Sent on to the North Bronx and struck four during the merger of 1995. He'd spent eight years there before protecting the police commissioner as a member of then top cop Ray Kelly's security detail. Joining me for volume 16, like I said, the e men inside the NYPD's Emergency Service Unit is retired E-Man and a uh, detective specialist, of course, Franco Berarducci. Franco, welcome. How are you? Mike, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Uh, Thank you for being here. And like I said, if you have, I always say this to the audience, you got a question for Franco, make sure you fire it away and I'll make sure he sees it at the proper time. So, Franco, the first question is always
3: easy. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in the story of Queens. Single mother. My father left us, well, left when I was two years old. Uh, And my sisters are young. And uh, basically, uh, you know, grew up as a, as a Catholic schoolboy went to aviation high school joined a uh, con Edison got employed with con Edison and then uh, to my uh, to my happiness ended up on the New York City Police Department
1: so in State the transit fl- police I should say. Trans police, of course, uh, from 87 and 95, as we'll discuss. And early on, Jay Driscoll's here. John Latanzio from Three Truck is here. And uh, Jeff Dito is here. He's says, looking good, Franco. Uh, Jeff so. Dito, good friend of mine. <laughs> so those guys okay. are uh, here. John and Jeff, always big supporters of the show. Thanks, Absolutely. guys, for tuning in, as always. Uh, and like I said, you got a question for Franco Fire Away. So how'd you come in to, I guess, how the opportunity to take the test come about for you?
3: Funny story with that. Uh, I signed up for the test and... Uh, I was actually working a bar that night, the night before, and I, and I overslept. And my mom walked into the room and she says, don't you have a test, a civil service test to take? She didn't know it was a transit police test. Jumped up when I took the test. Um, did all right. I think they called me two years after I took the test. And uh, at the time I was working for Con Edison. And uh, when I told her I was uh, leaving to go to transit cop, she was not an happy person. But, uh, yeah, he was actually on a whim. Now, that being said, I always wanted to be a cop. I just didn't think that that was the career to go. You know, uh, I studied uh, airplane mechanics in school, went to Academy of of Aeronautics, and uh, and I thought that was going to be the career I was going to go by. But uh, that didn't happen. Um, Stayed in New York. I started working with Con Edison, and uh, then I got that call from the transit police. And uh, the old timers in Con Edison actually begged me to leave Con Edison and go work for the New York City Transit for the Mm 20-year retirement, five weeks vacation. Um, They just, you know, they just basically said, frankly, you got to go, do do the small thing. And like I said, my family wasn't happy about it, but uh, in the end, it was the best decision I ever made. Of course.
1: We're talking with Franco Baraducci here on the Mike the New Haven podcast, volume 16 of the E-Men inside the NYPD's emergency service unit. So, you know, policing and I always talk about this with guys who were in housing or transit pre-merge policing and housing, the way they teach you how to police is different. I mean, obviously, the, the mission is the same. Catch bad guys, be proactive, interact with the community when you can. But transit, that is the most unique beat any cop can ever work because you're underground in a city within a city. How many people take the subway system every day in New York City? Millions. So walking around in this sea of people where the person on your left has such a different background and life story than the person on your right. You could be a millionaire on your left and some homeless bum on your right.
3: How do they teach you to police a place like that? Um, You know what? Uh, Basically, you start off with learning what the rules and regulations are in, in the subway and obviously the laws of the city of New York. And, and, and you take it from there. I mean, you know what? Being a cop is about common sense. It's all common sense, you know? And, and the most important thing about working in the subway is safety because there are just too many ways of getting hurt if you if your actions are not correct. So anytime you approach a civilian, um, the first thing you want to do is always make sure you're in a safe predicament. You want to take that civilian. When you approach that civilian, you want to take him out of the subway track location. You want to move yourself out of that subway track location. You want to put yourself in a a situation where other people are there to, you know, God forbid you get into an altercation and you need help. Subway, the radios were not functioning well when I came on the job. So at that time, you know, they may or may not work. And if God forbid you got into an altercation, you would hope that a civilian would either make the phone call to get you assistance or, or the, the the booth clerk would make that call for you so it was more about how to interact with the civilian and then make sure that you're safe and they're safe because it is a unique environment radios didn't work loud place. many ways that you can get hurt and it was just you know and again and, and when i started working it was solo patrol so you were on your own basically you had to make sure You had to be aware of your surroundings at all times.
1: You know, and and it segues perfectly into the next question. You're riding that train by yourself. And this is during a time where it didn't matter if you were riding it during broad daylight or in the middle of the night. So much was happening. I mean, subway crime, crime in general, but subway crime particularly was through the roof in the city. I mean, naturally, I don't want to say there's a fear there or an apprehension because you signed up to do the job and you got to be proactive. But, I mean, I think one would be lying if that thought of, man, is it going to hit the fan and am I going to be ready if it does, doesn't go through a cop's mind. So in that early stage of your career, where, as you said, you're on your own, if that thought process ever sprang up in your mind, what helped you counteract that so that you can be the best cop you can be? And by extension, those civilians on that train that just want to get to their destination safely
3: I trust you. Well, the first thing you want to do is you always want you always want to be prepared. So you're always thinking. So when you're walking into a, a crowded train, you're you're looking, you're observing, you're even saying to yourself, well, "What if this person approached me with a knife, or or a bat, or or what if that person attacked someone? What would I do? What's the quickest exit? How do I get help?" So you're constantly evaluating where you're at, and if something happened, how? What kind of action would you take? Would you wait? I mean, let's put it this way: if it was something that needed immediate immediate urgency obviously you're going to step in and what you got to do to stop it but if it's something where you see someone smoking and you know you're going to approach them and and inquire about that you might want to wait till the train is into a subway station so that if things do go wrong you're the doors are open you're able to exit you can pull them out you know and that's the biggest thing you can do is as a transit cop when you're alone. You don't have a partner to watch your back. So you're it. You have to constantly be thinking of different scenarios that can happen while you're on that train. And that's what's going to keep you safe. And this was during the
1: Bernard Getz era. And I don't recall which yes. station that this happened in, I but I know if it I'm happened.
3: I'm not mistaken. I think I think if I'm not mistaken, it could be the I think it was a 14th Street Union Square Station. And what was your normal beat in transit? Well, I started off with uh, TPF, which is Tactical Patrol Force, and we worked from six at night to uh, four in the morning. And basically, what you did is you were assigned a train route, and you rode, you walked up and down that train as army presence. You wanted people to see you, see you, and I mean, look like anything else. You see a cop, if you're thinking about doing something bad, you're going to think twice about it. And that was the whole purpose, and and I think it was pretty effective. I didn't care for the hours, but, you know, you're a rookie and you do what you're told to do. And, and not only that, as a rookie, I mean, I, I I born and raised in Queens. Now I'm riding a train into the areas that I've never stepped into. So if I get off that train and I have to go upstairs to the street, I'm looking and I'm like, I have no clue where I'm at. But you learn quick. You learn quick. You know what? When you're off duty, you go home, you look at the maps, try to get an idea of where you're at. So it was definitely, you know, for a young 22-year-old, it was definitely a huge learning experience
1: for me. And what's interesting is I think everybody, even little kids possess it, where they look at somebody and they're thinking, that person just doesn't look right. There's something about them that's off. But as a cop, I mean, granted, do you get some of this training in the academy? Sure. But really, it isn't until you're in the subway system or on the street, in your case, you know, down below in the subway system where you really can refine that and sharpen it to where even with a year on the job, two years on the job, is it the same as somebody with 15, 20? No, they've been around longer, obviously. So it's better for them, but still you have it to where you can look at somebody and he's a little fidgety There's Something's wrong with her and you can pick up on it. And as you said, it's effective because not only can you make that person think twice, but in some instances you can stop a crime before it even
3: happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if they, if that's, if that, if, if a situation like that does happen, where you you're looking at someone in their fidget or whatever, well, you know what? That's when you get in—not in their face, but you you get into their zone, letting them know. Listen, you're good. You you're the buffer between them if they decide to do something criminal and the people that are on the subway. You're it. You're there to protect those civilians. Unfortunately, you're there to protect the bad guy too. But, um, and I'll tell you something, Mike. It, it, it does work. You know, at that time, I think people respected the uniform. Um, Even the criminals, I think most of the time, they saw you, they thought twice about it. Maybe they exited the train and went somewhere else if they were thinking about it. But you know what? And and I saw it in the people's faces as I walked the train, them looking at you. And you could see a sense of relief. They could almost let their guard down for a minute while they were on the train while you're on that train. So, yeah, that omnipresent definitely, definitely works.
1: Of course. From that time, you know, on patrol, 84 to 87, is there, and I always like to ask this to guys that originally started out of patrol as all cops do, of course. Is there a collar that sticks out like, man, that was a good collar? And it made me it, it reinforced why you were so glad to become a cop in the first place.
3: So there were you know, numerous collars, but the one that, that I I particularly struck me, I have two sisters, I have my mom, they all rode the subway. And at the time I was an anti-crime, and me and my partner were on the train, and you know, I was dressed. I was dressed, you know, not in a great way. And we're me and my partner in a train. The train's running, it's crowded. And this guy is grinding against the girl. The girl was actually standing in front, I was behind her, like she her face was facing me and the bad guy was behind her. And as the train's riding, he's grinding her. And I could tell she was getting physically agitated and upset, almost to the point where she wanted to cry. And she, you know, she probably looked at me like I was a perp too. When the doors opened, I grabbed her. I pulled my shield out. I grabbed her onto the platform. I pawned to grabbed the bad guy, and she just started crying. You know, once we identified as, you know, I saw cops, and she realized, oh my God, you are cops! Thank you, thank God. We locked up the guy. She wrote a, a wonderful letter, how you know her trust and faith in in, in, the, in the police department, the subway system that were down there that we did that help her, and 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 I felt great about that, even though it was one of these great gun collars. But the fact that this young girl now could ride the subway tomorrow knowing that, you know what, yeah, we do have cops on the train in uniform, in plain clothes, and yes, we will make arrests when guys do stuff like that. So I thought that was a you know pretty satisfying, you know,
1: arrest perception. Absolutely. And thank you for doing that. You know, as somebody that uh, was around a lot of women, myself growing up, having my sisters and my cousins and whatnot, you know, it, it, I, I do appreciate hearing that myself. And, you know, not to, uh, I'm not making light of that, but it reminds me of a Seinfeld episode. I think this came out pre-merger to where there was somebody, Cosmo Kramer's being hounded by some guy in the subway. He's scared for his life. And there's somebody that's sitting next to him that's stress like a homeless person. He's thinking that person's a homeless person. And right when he's about to get pounded by this guy who's after him, for whatever reason, I forget that homeless person pulls out a detective shield and you could just see the relief in Cosmo Kramer's face. It was comedic, but you know what? It spoke to what was happening in New York city at the time to where, you know what? There was a presence there. People, as you said, could breathe that sigh of relief.
3: Absolutely. I mean, we were proactive. We, we used to work, the, we used to work the jostlers. I don't know if you know what the jostling is. No, tell me though. Jostling crime is basically <laughs> the guys that would, uh, as you're entering the train, they would come in and try to push their way in as they're doing that. They're actually going through your pockets. So they're going through a woman's purse And because the train, you know how people push in the pills, the right. trains, you know, you don't realize that you just think that guy's bumping into you. Meanwhile, he's riding, he's going through your pockets. And we would be there watching this. And it was so satisfying. He come out with the wallet and boom, there we are grabbing him. And you can see the shock in his face. Unfortunately, he'd be out the next day or well, that day, the same day. Yeah. But it was, it was, uh, it was a cat-and-mouse game that we would play in anti-crime. But one of those satisfying arrests to watch these guys, because they're good, and yet here we are watching them, you know, do the whole scene, taking the wallet out. The person never knew it, whether it's a male or a female, never knew it. And we grab it, and the next thing you know, we pull the people out. I'm like, look, are you missing? No, I'm not missing the wallet. Oh, yes, you are. He's got it. So it was, you know, it was fun. As a young kid, that was fun. It was exciting. Um, And it was satisfying when you made the arrest. The
1: the transit, before I get to the EMRU years, of course, the transit police, and there's a question the will get to momentarily as well. You guys were the kings and the queens of the decoy. And that's no disrespect to the NYPD or the housing police. They have some great plainclothes and undercover operatives there too, for sure. Not knocking them. But down below in the subway, looking back at the old clips on YouTube, you guys mastered the art of blending in to where – there was, I mean, sometimes, unfortunately, now you look at an anti-crime uh, cop and you could tell, yeah, that person's a cop. It's just obvious. Some people hide well, some people blend in, some people don't. They stick out like a sore thumb. Absolutely. That wasn't the case with the transit police. You guys just really blended in perfectly to where that was that there was that legitimate shock when it's like, holy crap, I would have never
3: guessed you were a cop. We were a tough police department. Again, we worked alone. And you know what? You had to be. Yeah, you, when you when you approach someone, you have to look them in the eyes and show them that you meant business, you know? Um, we were we you know, we had a lot of 80 cases where people would get hurt and, you know, we would add help to people, too. And many times my heart attacks passing out, stuff like that. I mean, we you know, we were I think we were what kept those people feeling good while riding the subway. Take us away from that scene. And you got chaos down there. Yeah.
1: And you're seeing that now, unfortunately. Robert Neal says hello. And he says, great to see you, Franco. Hope all is well, my friend. Uh, And the other, the other question is, yes, good guy. Great guy. Thank you, Robert, for tuning in tonight. Certified protection professional, as it says there in his uh, LinkedIn cover. And Joe Maliga, he always asks this and I get a kick out of it, but maybe you did deliver any babies. He wants to know.
3: No, came close, came close, but you know what? EMS was response time was very quick. So uh, as we were prepping the, the the mother to be, you know, the EMS was, and, and gratefully so, they got there and they took over. So, No, never physically delivered a baby.
1: Almost, Joe. Almost. But so that brings us to 1987. And thank you, Joe, for the question. Going to the emergency medical rescue unit, of course, uh, transit police's version of emergency service. So before I get into what made you want to go there, how long? You probably know the history better than I do, obviously, having
3: been in it. When did transit invent that unit? Um. That's a great question. I did know the answer. I just can't remember the date. I'm going to say 1977. I don't know why that's coming to my mind. So it's not like ESU where we're going back probably in the 50s. So I think ESU might have originated in 77. But obviously you can do your homework and find out better than me. I don't know why that year starts.
1: Yeah. Yeah. ESU for the NYPD was 1930. They celebrated their 92nd anniversary in April. But, yeah, I, I know I know housing, their rescue unit, because Latanzio told me this. It wasn't around long. I know they started in 92. It wasn't around too long before the merge. Well, we
3: actually, the transit police actually
1: trained. He mentioned that, and he was grateful for it, the too. The housing unit, just prior to them getting, prior to the merge. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you guys definitely helped him out. So, I mean, by that point, you got three years on. Uh, I guess the action, the ability to do more, the ability to do rescues, is that what attracted you to it?
3: I'm gonna be honest with you, Mike. I, I you know what? It, it, no, uh, you had to be an MT. You had to deal with a lot of blood stuff and and, uh, and gory stuff. I, and you know what? Someone had mentioned it to me. It sounded exciting. Uh, I spoke to one of my sergeants, and he said, "You know what? You would fit well in that in that unit." And he actually told me to go for the interview and made a phone call, stating, "You know what? You're gonna you're gonna be interviewing with Franco. We highly recommend him." And I went for the interview, and I got in there. And uh, once again, something that I'm not saying I was passionate about, but once I got into the unit. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
4: A laundry? Ooh, a
0: book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your
1: chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com
2: With the Lucky Lands Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
3: John Latanzio says
1: Franco was a great instructor when teaching housing rescue to climb the Manhattan Bridge and navigate the tracks. Well, John, I said, thank you. That's uh, very kind of him. Thank you, John. And Stu Kelso, he's watching from across the pond in England. And I appreciate that because it's it's almost one o'clock in the morning over there. So thank you, Stu. Go to bed. But he says, (laughs) did you feel the city of New York supported the transit cops of your day?
3: Absolutely. You know, one thing I got to say is toughest things were them days in crime. You know, crime was was pretty rampant. We did have the support of the city, and we had the support of the communities, which I thought was great. So, we could do our job effectively, and know that we, you know, we had the backing of the city and and the uh, and the citizens. Now, going back into emergency medical rescue, what's
1: interesting about the train jobs, and that's that's not exactly the only thing you guys did. We'll get into the other things that unit did. Uh, As we go along here, but the train jobs, people don't realize how hard it is to lift the train. Now, granted, you're not Superman. You're you're not going underneath. Okay, one, two, three and lifting it up. You have to jack it up a little bit. But if you jack it too much, it can fall over, which creates even more problems than you have at the start. You
3: you know, Mike, if it's involved, it's probably, it would take a little too long for your audience. But absolutely, if you jack it too much, if people notice the wheels have, there's an edge that sticks that there's like a lip on the wheel. It keeps that wheel on the track. That obviously, if you lip it, if you lift it over that, chances are it can't slide out. But I, you know what? In most of my lifts, you know, if that train wheel ran over someone and the person was still alive, you didn't need much to kind of slide that body part or the individual out of that situation so and and if we showed you if i told you when i say we used to it wasn't a a mechanical jack it was an airbag probably about an inch wide you know and uh that airbag once inflated would actually lift the train off the rail just enough so that we can remove either the body part or the whole body and i i would say half the jobs i responded to the people were still alive So, you know, you had, you know, people that were dead and then you had some that were alive. And and the ones that were alive, you know, again, it was it was satisfying to be able to get it, get in there, lift that train, get them out. And even though maybe they possibly losing a limb, at least you, you know, you were successful in getting them out of there alive. Yeah. So it it was one of the most interesting parts of transit rescue because just the fact just trying to get to that person was a task in itself. You're basically crawling under a train, maybe 18 inches on your belly, trying to get to that individual. And now you're trying to get all the equipment in there. Obviously, you had help and stuff like that. But the person that was getting into, that was getting on the train to access that person, I mean, you know, it was, uh, you know, many times my gun belt would get stuck on some of the train parts and stuff like that, and and, and and you kind of catch yourself almost panicking. And then you calm yourself down and you're like, OK, listen, you've trained for this. You know what to do. Back out. If you had to, you will loosen your, your, your gun belt and you get out of that situation. But uh, it, it was definitely a challenging job when you had a person under a train. Um,
1: and not only that, the third rail, too. It's got Absolutely. that electrical charge. And, you know, granted, they would eventually turn it off for the time being while you guys did what you had to do. But before they turned it off, and certainly my friends in the fire department can attest to this too, that ain't fun being next. You take one wrong step and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be quite the shock, literally.
3: Well, we, I was on jobs, Mike, with the train where they accidentally turned it back on. You hear the motors kicking back on. and, and But we always worked on the assumption that the power's on. Even if we got confirmation of power being off, yeah, you worked as if power was on, you never took it for granted. It's only it doesn't take much for some, you know, to make a mistake, or for, you know, you wouldn't inadvertently, you know, grounding yourself, and that's it in your history.
1: <laughs> that's one way to put it. John McKenna, another former E man, he says, uh, Franco, a total gentleman, learned a lot from him. Good from man, college.
3: John McKenna, truck one, good guy.
1: Thank you, John, for tuning in tonight. And I have a train job here, unfortunately. I don't know if this gentleman was pushed or if he committed suicide, but he did not survive this. And uh, this is an uh, episode of Cops from 1994 and EMRU working a man under job. Here we go. All
3: right, at this time, we're responding to up from Manhattan to 124th Street and Lexington Avenue. We have a report of a man under a train. He's wedged too much. Now is we have a person and male between the third rail, which generates the power for the trains, and the truck, the wheels of the train. Uh, when we get confirmation power up on both express track and local track, what we'll try to do is jack up the train and try to slide the body out. All right, we just had the southbound uh,
4: number two train move out of here at 125 in Lenox. Uh, at this uh, point, uh, you can uh, notify the TMO to start removing power on the southbound tracks again. Uh,
3: it's gonna be a difficult procedure because he's pinned under the third rail, he's pinned under the train itself. We're gonna try and do a lift now to see how much clearance we can get to attempt to pull the body out of there. It's gonna be an extremely difficult procedure, a difficult procedure to get him out of there at this point. Are we
2: gonna go yellow line? Alright.
3: Alright, go ahead. Bring it up slow. bring it up. All the way, tell me finding Mike. Right I don't know if we got much room, Mike. Yeah, we got about uh, an inch and a half. Alright, this will work just fine. This will be fine. He's clear. He's clear. We'll put him up on the train, put him off to the platform, and then if they want to move, then we can track down the rest of it. We pretty much got to look. He skid marks all the way back for about another 50 to 75 feet. We got a red bag, we'll go find out if it's, it's supposed to be an arm and some other stuff there.
4: Do you know what the uh, I believe there's an arm and there's other body parts down there.
3: He had nothing left of his clothes, only maybe a piece of his sweatshirt, which is an indication that this person was dragged and tumbled about uh, quite a bit.
1: For those of you who will listen to this show later on and will watch it on YouTube, I'll describe it. The man's leg looked, I mean, just at that angle alone, I imagine how the whole body looked. I mean, his leg looked awful in that. I mean, it wouldn't look good after being ran over by a train. And that's tough. I mean, he has nothing left of his colds, as you said in that clip. There's the aspect of respectfully removing this body. Rather, this person chose to end their life or was unfortunately murdered. It's still a very sad situation.
3: So tell me about that process, which you guys did a good job of in this clip. You know what? I mean, I think we always had that in the back of our mind that we respectfully removed anybody that uh, had passed away uh, as best as you can. You know, there were times where, you know, it might not look pretty for the person that's standing, the bystander that's watching. But, you know, again, you're trying to do things, you're trying to make sure that you're safe, everybody around you is safe, and at the same time, remove that body in a safe way. Um, and I think most of the time we did, we, you know, there was no joking around in moments like that. You did what you had to do, you know, don't forget the train, the train system is shut down for the time that you're doing that. So you're trying to, you know, get the body out as safely as you can and have that system resume, you know, in rush hour and stuff like that. So, you know, there's a lot going on and guys are professional. And I tell you, I worked with some of the best people around. I mean, emergency service guys, amazing, amazing people. You know, a lot of, you know, the citizens, civilians don't know that, what these guys do and the precarious positions that they put themselves in. But you know what? Uh, we do it. We take pride in it. And I and and, 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 and it was an exciting type of job. Stuff that you read in the paper, we were doing.
1: And what's interesting about that particular job is, for mm-hmm. those of you that will see this on YouTube, either you're watching it live now or you'll watch the replay later, every rescue unit was there and what i mean by that is you guys were there that was your jurisdiction housing police you saw their rescues i guys in that clip including one guy he was helping with the train lift and then i saw a couple of emergency service guys from the they NYPD. Were. so all three of them are there how often would that happen all three of you guys be on the scene together
3: not often because housing rescue had just they just had finished their training so um i, they, I, I mean th- right after their training basically the merge happened so they really didn't have much time out I, i'm not sure if it was three months four months five months they weren't out there that long before the merge happened and they actually were absorbed i think in the nypd months before we were
1: yeah about so, a year uh,
3: about a yeah, year right so uh, no it didn't happen that often. i mean us emru and esu absolutely i mean I joined in '86. The, the issue, and I mean most most train jobs, they would respond to. But for the most part, when they came down and they saw us, I mean, they knew we were experts at 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 the trains, working on the trains, jacking the train. There's there's, there's procedures that you have to do. You can jack up a train if you don't do it properly, that train will come right back down on you. Mm-hmm. So there's 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 you know a lot of things that you have to do before you jack that train. So yeah, we, we were good at it. I got I got to say that.
1: No, you guys were great at it. I mean, you do it enough time. Practice makes perfect, as the old saying goes. Paddy Pogan's watching. He'll be on the show soon good himself. Man. Another good man. man. I agree. I believe EMRU was started in 1978. I was on the first call with police officer Joe Said, later sergeant in EMRU. Paddy, of course, started his career originally in New York City EMS, pre their merger with the FDNY in 1996. Uh, and Stu Kelsall says another question from Stu. Are there any jobs that you went to that you didn't feel prepared for?
3: You know, um, I can't say off the job that I didn't feel prepared for. There were jobs that we, you know, you're scratching your head and you're wondering, how are you going to do this? The great thing about ESU and, and rescue was most guys were tradespeople, whether it's plumbing, electrical, carpentry, uh, mecha- car mechanics. So if I didn't know something, maybe my partner knew something that would basically say, hey, let's try this locksmiths you know we would make entries into doors locksmiths and they would come up with the solution so we kind of complemented each other so that we can solve the problem so it wasn't so much you didn't feel prepared you just you waited until somebody or you you devise a situation a way of take it. let's put it this way when we were called there was nobody else to call if we came there we couldn't do the job there's nobody else so you had to do the job that's the bottom line And and i and i'm telling you i don't Think it was every job that we walked away from that we said we couldn't do it. we did it you know might not have been pretty but we did it you got
1: it done and i'll ask you about one of them in a moment latanzio to your point earlier about housing he says that's only about eight months uh before before the merge it was funny because he told me this mm-hmm. and steve lenoz who later went out to the bomb squad. Yes. Told me this off air as well, and uh, he'll be on the show later on this year. Steve, we'll Steve he's a great guy too. It's good. man, shenan- a <laughs> yes, good man. As I'll ask him about, you know, how he got that nickname when he's on, he's like, you know, about a year before the merge, in their housing rescue uniforms, they were at different ESU trucks, not officially in there, you know, but they were part of it. They were, I think it was Latanzio that called him like the the stepchild. It was funny, hmm. but. You know, eventually they they, fully, they were fully absorbed. And of course, the ageless wonder of ESU is watching tonight. My buddy Steve Stefanakis, he says, Franco, when you weren't prepared, I always had
3: the answer." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell Steve, ask him who trained him.
1: Yeah. And well, so Steve's watching, so hopefully, answer that question. Of course, as we all know, Steve. For those of you wondering when Steve Stefanakis will retire, we all know the answer is the year three thousand. He's, he's already said ready. it. He'll call it. He'll call it quits. He's, then. The, he's
3: the king of ESU right now. He's not going nowhere.
1: He's nowhere at all. He'll, he'll be there. He'll Steve Stefanakis. By the time I leave this earth, (laughs) he's going to age out, Mike, you watch, he's going to age out for sure. For sure. And listen, God bless him. Let him keep going with that. Like I called him the other day, uh, the Brady of ESU, you know, Brady's still kicking it at 45. And so Stefanakis, you know Uh, so good for him. So one job that was a crazy job. I remember asking about this off the air. It was 88 is I remember having Eddie Hayes from the bomb squad on this show and he was at this job with the bomb squad. This guy had two bombs on him. He was trying to do a suicide bombing and he failed, thank God. One of them went off and that killed him. But he was in the subway dead with one bomb still strapped to him and it was live. Now, I know ESU now, like they'll go and they'll suit the bomb squad guys up and you know they'll send them in and then they'll help them take the suit off. Pre-merger though, on a job like that, where you guys are obviously going to be called in, how did you guys assist the bomb squad, not just on that job, but back then in
3: tour? Well, pretty much the bomb squad always relied on ESU to help them suit up. So in that situation, I was on that job, and I remember that, you know, everybody was lingering around after, you know, the explosion happened, and someone yelled out, that anybody check out for a second device, secondary device, and all of a sudden you get a pin drop. And you know, everybody cleared out and bomb squad came and did their thing. Um, we were in as EMRU, we weren't so active in assisting the system bomb squad at that time, other than maybe evidence search. They, you know, I actually went to ESU school, STS school, as a transit cop, as an EMRU guy. I was invited to to one of their classes. And what the bomb squad does is they come down and they basically show the ESU guys, how to assist them in putting on the suit. So there is some training involved with helping them. You can't just go over there and, you know, know, as an EMRU guy and start helping them. There's certain procedures that you learn once you're in STS school to help the bomb squad guys. And uh, I don't think that day I assisted them. I think ESU guys were there and, you know, helped them out. But, you know, again, that's something where you weren't trained, you step back and you let the guys that are trained to do what they do and and the issue you know they the bomb squad. the issue did their thing that day but i i do remember that job of iberley scene and i remember there were two transit cops that actually weren't seriously injured but uh when the explosion happened they were in the vicinity of that and uh, they were taken away and, and thank god the that secondary device didn't go my, my understanding is that he was he was he wanted both devices to go off but when he made contact with his fingers one set of fingers made contact prior to the second set and that bomb went off and the second one didn't. So, you know, thank God that didn't happen.
1: And and Eddie told me a couple things that one, they had to make a hand entry there, which, you know, that's a last resort. Like they will not do that unless they're absolutely positively have to, and all their options have been exhausted. And they never figured out who that guy was interval tried to figure out who he was. They never figured it out. So that was just a, an anonymous man who, unfortunately. You know what?
3: I never followed up on that because obviously the, the, the detectives get involved in that and they right. do, you know, they start to do their homework on the guy. Already. So I never, I really never looked into that, who he was or anything like that. You know, you know, the funny thing about ESU when you know, you go there, you do your job and you walk out and then right. you know, the, the detectives do, you know, the follow up and all that stuff. So. Billy Kennedy
1: from one truck, the lightning bolt truck, of course. A- he <laughs> was
3: my boss for a short period of time. We had a great time in truck four.
1: He'll be, be on, on. Uh, next month for episode 199 mm-hmm. before I hit the milestone 200. He's like, Patty was on when, in reference to Pogan, when they were using horses and buggies. <laughs> and Franco <laughs> is a good man in <laughs> class And he says that with love, of course. He clarifies he says that with love to you, Patty. And uh Stefanakis does admit Franco was a big part of my training. So you see, he's humble, Stefanakis. He's so, funny man. You, He's a good guy, Steve. Very good fun. guy. Yeah. Very good guy. And hopefully I'll see Steve in person soon. So, you know, there is not just the underground jobs. You guys did do above ground jobs. And yeah, there are the big ones. I'll ask you about the Leary subway bombing a little later. Obviously, you guys at EMRU did go down to uh, the World Trade Center the first time in 1993, uh, as did housing rescue at that time as well. But when you recall the above ground jobs, because you didn't have that rescue truck for nothing. What are some of the ones that stick out?
3: Um, I mean, we had you know, we had the elevator subway train too, mm-hmm. so we were responsible for that. So, if you want to call that as an above ground, sure, you know, we you know, um, you know, we respond. I mean, listen, if we, if Mike, if we were at a, a above ground, we rode in cars and so we, we rescue, we rode in, 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 in trucks. I mean, we're on the street, obviously, if something a crime happens or someone needs aided, we're going to stop and help them, you know what. Uh, I, I was never one to chase jobs that were not in my confines of what my purview of what we were supposed to do, you know. Um, but obviously, if something happened in, in uh, you know, close to us or if, you know, if, a, if a city cop needed help, we were there. We would help them out, you know, whatever. And then we'd step back once the NYPD came in, you know, they did their thing. We, you know, we stepped back. But we had enough work going on. I mean, we had medical jobs. We had, EDPs. I know you know the you know, EPs and subways. Uh we had we had explosions. I mean, there was always something going on. And then the way transit rescue worked, we were responsible. One truck could be responsible for two boroughs. So you could be running back and forth from borough to borough. That must have been pretty interesting on a given shift. Of course. It was great. You got to learn the city. I mean, that I mean that was the best way to learn the city. You know, right. and, and then again, we experienced all kinds of uh all kinds of jobs. Uh, no, it was, and then we also had perp jobs in the subway, which was kind of tricky too. Because trying to find a bad guy in a subway tunnel is probably one of the most dangerous things you can do. You know, the third rail, dark, uh, mechanical equipment that you know, it, it, you know, moving mechanical equipment that you can caught off um, stairways, the hidden stairways. It, I mean, it, it was uh, you know, we trained for that also. How to how to. A lot of perps ran into the tunnel. You chase them, they run into the tunnel. They know it's going to be an easy escape. So if it was a bad job and we felt it was necessary to go into tunnels, we would. We shut down the subway system and uh, go in there, you know, try to find them. And what's interesting about
1: that is not only did you mention that, sometimes because of the air quality, you guys strapped on some Scott Packs. You strap that on for that. And there's also those jobs where sometimes the trains malfunction, the railways kind of sparkle. And, you know, unfortunately, there's smoke billowing in the subway, not because there's necessarily a fire, but there's a malfunction of some sort. So jobs like that where you got to strap on that Scott Pack, you really can't see the hand in front of your face. It's already difficult enough because you're underground. Tell me about the training for that and also any jobs you had that revolved around most situations like well,
3: that. Well, we were trained in confined space rescues where you're obviously using the Scott packs and they teach you how to maneuver in tight spaces with the Scott packs. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a tricky thing too. Um, fortunately, most of the jobs I responded to, even where we, we call them smoke conditions, you know, maybe there's a small fire uh, train train is stuck in the tubes and, Maybe some of that smoke is starting to get into the train cars and we went in there. Uh we would bring it with, with us, but uh for the most part we never used it. I'm gonna tell you what in my experience with transit rescue, where I use most of the scott packs, bad DOA jobs. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. There may we had n- numerous homeless jobs where they died on this on a, on say on the last car, and they could be riding that car for you know. 24 hours and now we get called on it And I'm telling you Mike The smell was overwhelming
2: With the Lucky Land Slots You can get lucky just about anywhere
0: This is your captain speaking uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine But we're just going to circle up here a while And uh, get lucky No no nothing like that It's just these cash prizes add up quick So I suggest you sit back Keep your tray table upright And start getting lucky
2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: And some guys couldn't handle it, and you know they put the Scott Pack on, and there you go. My trick was always to put Vicks under my nose, <laughs> just a little bit. I dab a little Vicks in my nostrils, and that would kind of solve the problem. But uh, we—that's what we're, we mostly use the Scott Pack for was for stuff like that when it was a really bad job.
1: I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Imagine you got the Vicks under your nose. It's it's a beautiful morning, isn't it? The EMRU guy next to you is almost puking, you know, <laughs> which would be me in that scenario. I, yeah, that's not, yeah, I don't know how a, you guys do that.
3: Between the man-unders and some of those DOAs that we found in the tunnels and on the trains, it was pretty nasty. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound like fun. Here's a, well,
1: Rick Martinez is here, great guy from Truck 3. Great guys, great times. Guy. Great guy, yeah. Rick was on this show for Volume 7, and a great guest he was. And Joe Malik, another question from Joe a police
3: impersonator. It's a good question. I, you know what? I I don't. I don't know if I ever caught one, but I do. You know what? I, I I, I don't know why. In my mind, I remember something about impersonator, but I don't know if we caught him or someone else caught him. I, I I don't remember. But uh...
1: there is a uh, interesting little photo here i want to share before i get to the merger of 95 these these beauties this is what i was telling you about off the air that i love these trucks you know the model everything about it you guys carried a lot of great tools on it i'm sure i mean driving this thing around which is a little mini toolbox i can't imagine how much fun it must have been especially when you had the lights and sirens blasting through the streets of the city right Great,
3: great 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 well actually that's not even the original one you know the black and whites remember the black and whites one
1: The black and whites I'm trying to find. I can't. That's another one of uh, the EMRUs, the blue and white. But the black and whites, well, basically, what kind of model were you guys driving to that?
3: I think that was a GMC. Okay. And I think that was gas. I know in ESU we were using diesel. That was gas. Mm
1: -hmm. All right. Different era back then. And those vehicles weren't around long, but that's some good snaps there. And I don't know where he is, but it mentions he was ESU. Charlie King is his name. This guy would take a lot of great photos of your trucks, the housing rescue trucks, and Hopefully, I can find him and get him on the show because he has a lot of uh, great photos of uh era gone oh, by. Cool. Yeah, I actually have one. Mm-hmm. Right really?
3: Now.
1: Yeah. It? You, yeah, sure. Go ahead.
3: That one uh, you know what, Mike? Actually, I have the same one you were talking about. I apologize. No, go ahead show it anyway. It doesn't matter Three to me. Some more. Three some. I thought I had the black, the old black and white. So I don't know if you can see it. Yep. Yeah, that's
1: that's for uh,
3: EMRU guys
1: standing right in front of there. Look at that. Yeah, that's yeah. a great truck,
3: man. It's yeah, a great truck. The, the black one, black and whites are pretty cool, too.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. So that brings us to 95. My buddy Scott Wagner, who's a former housing detective, calls it the hostile takeover. There were some hmm. guys and some gals that say, you know what, it was good. There are some guys and some gals that to this day are very, very bitter about that merger and view it as just that the hostile takeover. When it came when it became apparent that after the union kept fighting Giuliani on it, that Giuliani was going to win that fight and he was going to get his way and you were going to go into Big Brother, I, I imagine there was a mixture of emotions on one hand that it's an exciting new opportunity, but at the on the other hand, it's it, it's kind of a sad day to see transit go go away, at least in,
3: in that form. You know what? I was uh, I was happy where I was. I had a great job with rescue. We had great people working rescue, uh, great bosses. Um, but that was above me and I was, I was always, I always had the attitude. All right. Listen, if it happens great, you know, obviously NYPD has offers a lot more opportunities. Um, if it doesn't happen, I was having a great time in transit rescue. So, um, once we, once I knew that it was going to happen, yeah, I was excited, you know, because again, it just, you know, it's an amazing police department. I mean, you know, the opportunities in all the different unit, various units you can go into, there's no limit. So um, once we knew it was going to happen, I was like, hey, let's go forward and let's make this work.
1: I've been on record as saying this numerous times, and this is no disrespect to any other previous eras or the current era of ESU. Those guys are doing a great job. Um, but I feel like that 1995 from the merger forward to right before 9-11 in 2000, that, in my humble opinion, might have been the apex of ESU in that you had the expertise of everybody, all of the seasoned city emergency service guys that were there. All the seasoned transit rescue cops, all the seasoned housing rescue cops that came in, the guys that knew about elevators and housing projects, the guys that knew about how to lift the train. You merged, that's this is one of the benefits of the merger. You merged all that expertise into one. And that five year period where nobody had retired yet for the most part, and guys were still on and blending all that together, that might have been the best stretch in ESU's illustrious history.
3: I mean, I think so. I'm sure there'll be other people that disagree and say, you know what, ESU was great prior to that. And, sure, and, yeah. and they were, they were great. So, uh, prior to our arrival, yeah, we added a different mix to it, but at the end, you know, I think for the most part, we all congealed and worked well together and, you know, some of us became great friends and some people maybe stayed bitter, but, you know, listen, you can't chase, you know, what other people feel. You gotta, you, you gotta make good for yourself and, uh, I had a great time in the issue. In fact, I, I, in my whole career, the issue was the best time of my life. There was a third herd, too, in Truck 4. A lot of there interesting heard, characters. Uh, truck, third herd and four truck, an amazing truck. I, I was accepted really well by all the guys in four truck. I mean, you know, I was told there was going to be problems when I get into the issue. There were no problems. You know what? I got along great with everybody, with all the bosses. Uh, we all worked hard to, you know, to make to, to to do the job well, and um, no, it was just a great time.
1: You guys have so many interesting details, and I was mentioning this to you off the air. You know, in the Bronx, there's Yankee Stadium, and it's not just a baseball game. Sometimes there's concerts that ha- happen there. Sometimes football teams and soccer teams will play there when the Yankees are on the road, or it's not baseball season. But I mean, you, this was during the time of the Yankee dynasty, so there were so many big games going on from that stretch of 96 to 01, you know, when they were making the world series pretty much every year. So tell me about getting the chance to be there. Don't give me any secrets of course, of how you guys do things. I don't want that because I'm not trying to have the Intel division call me up and then I will wrap my pants, but right. just being there, getting the chance to see the players, getting the chance to really see the game, even though you're not focusing on the game itself, obviously you're focusing on security in a way that most people can never dream of. How cool was that? Well,
3: you know, how do I, how do I say, it? here's a kid from Astoria, Queens, no father, uh, nobody, you know, I didn't know anybody that was, you know, important that would give me access to any of these, to any of this stuff. And now here I am in Yankee Stadium, pretty much carte blanche, you know, uh, Yankee Stadium, the, the people that worked at Yankee Stadium were great with us. They knew what, why we were there and they were always happy to see us. Um, obviously, there was some dynasty and just being part of it. Being around the players, seeing them. Same thing. They respected us. They gave us the respect. They appreciated us, appreciated us being there, obviously for their protection too. Um you know sometimes I would have to pinch myself when I was there. I said, look at this. Guy. I mean, if somebody would have told me that I'd be, you know, on the field or off the field or in the stadium or roaming around or standing next to Jeter, or, you know, I would have said, No, that's not gonna happen. But you know, <laughs> there I was. There I was in carte blanche, basically, you know, yeah, walk in and walk out whenever we wanted to, you know, and uh, I, that, that was part of the, I mean, that's what the job offered us along with the different various jobs we did is you got to go places, you got to meet certain people, you know, uh, it gave you a lot of access to other parts of, you know, this world that we live in and stuff that normally a guy like me would not have access to.
1: And that's that's why I'm so jealous of you guys. I'm like, I think I think who was I joking with? I think it might have been Steph on LinkedIn, and I'm like, I would have became a cop just for that, just for the details. Because there was a funny clip. It was it wasn't an ESU guy. Yet the Yankees were playing Texas back then in the '90s. They used to smack Texas around all the time. And Shane Spencer, the home run dispenser, jacked <laughs> one out to Monument Park in left field. And it's a, it's a cop that captures the home run ball on left field. Yeah. You know, it's so a little moments like that were so yeah. cool. You know, the Mets had big playoff games during that time. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm sure, yeah, you know, with, with John Rocker and that whole thing, the guys from 9 and 10 truck had their hands full. But 2000, you know, and we might get a – hopefully we get part two this year, the Subway Series. So, such a big deal. The Yankees are playing the Mets in the World Series. You know, and unfortunately some people look at this, you know, people with bad intentions, says, this is my chance. Tell me about the prep work first to making sure both Shea and Yankee Stadium were kept safe and then watching some of these crazy moments like Clemens chucking the bat at Piazza and everything else that went on in that series.
3: You know what? I mean, there was a lot of logistics that uh, went into that to, to secure those games, and uh, obviously that was done by people in the administrative part, but um, we were assigned specific locations without going into detail that Gave us access to the to the whole thing, the game. It was just amazing, you know. And once again, I'm pinching myself. I'm like, I can't believe I'm here, and I'm watching. You know, I'm watching. I'm at the, you know, Subway Series. You know, you know, it's just an amazing opportunity while you're working. Um, I remember one time, I think uh, one of the buses had broken down, and we had responded just to secure the exchange from, of the players from one bus to another, you know, and here I'm watching all these players exit the bus and, you know, they're thanking us or whatever. And, you know, this is what the job, these are the opportunities this job offered to us. And it was just, again, it was just, um, you say yourself, I can't believe, you know, I'm, no, I'm, I'm involved in this. So as much as you saw a lot of bad things on the job, there was also a lot of, good things you saw and you were involved in. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it was, it was a great job. Celebrities would come through to the Bronx quite a bit, you know, especially
1: people that were originally from the area, I know DMX was from there. Jennifer Lopez is from there just to name a few. And that's, I'm not missing a bunch of other people. We don't have time to name. So when they would come through, what are some of the coolest celebrities, you, if anybody that
3: you can recall meeting? I, I hope this doesn't sound vain, but I, I'm not really a celebrity chaser. That's fine. I mean, um, if I saw a celebrity, I would not like, you know, give me an autograph, you know, or, or maybe even give them the time of day. My job is there to protect. Obviously, you know, if they were in some kind of danger, then we would step in and and, and you know, provide them access to to, to a secure place. But again, you have you now you, there you are having access to these celebrities, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, you would see that they would look for you. would look at you like you know can you help us get through this location this crowd or whatever so yeah i mean we access to celebrities the ball players the politicians to Mm -hmm. bad guys you know sometimes you had to you had to you had to secure a transport for a bad guy i mean we did it all we were in the mix of all of this stuff you know it's like i said people they pick up the newspaper in the morning they're reading this we're there you lived it. The middle of it you know yeah and those stories are stories that really nobody
1: else can tell and i guess that you know does bring us briefly to 9-11 four truck was hit you know a lot of the esu trucks were hit with some tough losses and even if you didn't work in the truck with these guys you know them because you guys associate so much you fly to other trucks john Coglin and steve driscoll were two integral parts of truck four and john Coglin. A lot of guys will say not a better boss. You know, he was a boss in the housing rescue unit and the merge came over and he excelled as a member of the NYPD. Just, you know, I don't know when you got down to the trade center that day, but learning that John and Steve were missing and, and learning that, unfortunately they had perished in this. Uh, just tell me about that day and your fondest memories of those two guys.
3: Well, Steve was actually me and Steve were partners that day. And, uh, what saved, I guess, my life almost is the fact that I was the chauffeur of the truck. And if you know, when you drive the truck, when you're the chauffeur, you stay with that vehicle. You know, there's a lot of special equipment in there that you're, your are tasked to safeguard. So the chauffeur stays with the vehicle. So me and Steve, I mean, you know, I remember Steve, we couldn't get there fast enough responding from the Bronx. And uh, once we got there, Steve was like, we got to go in, we got to go in, and, you know. And I was on the World Trade Center job in '93, and I remember we were climbing up. Me and Dale Summers was my partner at the time. we were climbing up the stairway, and we had a lot of equipment. But as you're doing, as you're up that tenth floor, you're exhausted, and you're starting to drop the equipment. And I was telling Steve, Steve, let's, you know, you can only take so many things, you know. And, uh, and his last words were, "Okay, Franco, you know." And then he he, he hooked up with John Coglin as a team of five and they went into the north building, which was the last building being hit. And uh, while that was all going on, the helicopters were, were tasked to land on West Street. And I was asked to drive their truck to West Street to assist them in setting up for rappel. They were looking to rappel officers, the ESU guys onto the roof. And at that point, the helicopter that was in the air had radioed that the building was coming down. And I look up and there it is just as you see on the TV coming down right in front of my face. And, um, you know, pretty much the rest is history. I was like, Oh my, you know, you kind of stand, you know, you were shocked at first and you, you caught still. And then you makes you know you're in that cloud of smoke and overwhelmed with all that smoke and stuff like that. And all my Scott packs, would, I had given out the Scott packs, the, the US, ESU officers that were responding. So I didn't have any available for me at the time, but, um, Getting back to John and Steve Driscoll, uh, I knew they were there. Didn't know what their situation was. And we weren't and, – and honestly, we weren't going to know till a day or two later. I mean, look, you know, you saw the buildings. You saw the collapse. You're like, how can anybody survive that? But in the back of your mind, there was always hope. And we did. We, I would say the first week, we were climbing through crevices of, of cement Hoping to hear and see and find, unfortunately, we didn't. We didn't. Yeah. And uh, at some point, you have to come to a realization, you know that. I don't, you know, I don't know how anybody could survive that. So, but two of the greatest guys I've ever known, ever known. There's a video on YouTube, and I n- now I know it
1: was you, uh, Arlene Harrison, uh, president of the Grand Park. Block Association did these great tributes to the different ESU trucks, and she did one for the Bomb Squad, two for Claude Richards, and she spoke with you guys. And you mentioned Steve was kind of peppy that morning. He's like, come on, let's go do things. He wanted to run some errands for the truck. It seemed like that was just his nature. He was like, you know, kind of the, the spark plug of that, of that squad. He was a
3: spark plug. He was the type of guy that if somebody – I'll give you a short story. Uh, we're passing the very, very – he would Steve Steve was in, in uh I think he was in the Navy. Very yeah. patriotic. Sees a flag that's furled up hanging on the post office. Stop the truck, stop the truck. What's up, Steve? The flag makes me pull the truck up to the sidewalk, climbs the top of the truck to unfurl the American flag. Do anything for you. If you if you were sick or you had a relative that was sick, Steve would would start a foundation or or or, or uh, you know a charity he, he just always wanted to help people he's just a great all-around guy funny guy funny guy but he couldn't get down there. we couldn't get down there quick enough that day he yeah. wanted to get in there and help people
1: yeah and you said in that video
3: he wanted to take the world up there with him in terms absolutely. of all the equipment absolutely he wanted he and i told him i said steve you can't you can exhaust yourself you know just take a couple of pieces of equipment whatever you can but other than that you know and that's just from my my experience i mean i was exhausted yeah. You we know, were ten flights the first time. So, Danny Cohn's watching. He says Franco.
1: He's happy to see you. So, Danny, good man, Danny, Danny Cohn, good guy. He's been on this show before. He's out on Suffolk County now, doing great work yeah. with their ESU. Yeah. So it's it's funny with Coglin. Last note on him. He was a big man. He was. Yeah. I remember some. somebody in the video next to you saying he'd like take up the doorway on the phone. What's up, lad? And you're trying to get around him, and he's just like John. I, you I, I, need to move, you know. But, but he was a gentle giant
3: in every respect. Little Absolutely. things like that were funny. he call you guys his lads? Another, another generous guy. I mean, just, I mean, he would do anything for you, you know. Uh, just a quick story with John Coghlan. We were in an EDP job, and I was the first person to make entry into that uh, in the apartment. The guy had two knives, and uh, I was as we went to make the grab. There was water on the floor. I had slipped, and he's coming down, stabbing. I had a bunker, and he's stabbing the bunker, and everybody's like freaking out. And next thing I know, I see this Y-bar come above me, and John Cog literally picked the guy up with this Y-bar. Guy drops the knife, and then everybody starts tackling him. So I think if John didn't do that, he probably would have stabbed me at least once or twice. The bottom line is for months, you know, my mom makes her own Italian sauce. For months he kept asking me for Italian sauce, and I would forget. That next day after that incident, I walked him four jars of Italian sauce. And he's like, you know, Franco, is this what it took for me to get four jars of sauce? <laughs> <laughs> and it was comical, but it was, you know, I mean, I didn't I don't know how else like to say thank you to him for that. You know, it was just it was one of those moments between me and him, like here, yeah, John. Good man, good people. Absolutely. So that
1: brings us to 2003. It took a while for ESU to come to grips with not just John and Steve losing their lives, but all 14 of these guys that brought so much to the unit, you can't replace them. But ESU did a good job of soldiering on, and uh, certainly an STS class came after that. Those guys, you know, they continued to do great working, respectfully honor the legacies of these fallen heroes. And in 2003, you went to Ray Kelly's detail. By that point, you've been on the job almost 20 years. You're having a great time in emergency service between transit and of course, the NYPD, but certainly this is a unique opportunity for you. How did it come about? And even though I know it was a tough decision, probably what made you say, you know what, even though I love emergency, I think I'm going to do this.
3: Well, I'm going to, a a short story. My sister had cancer she was a Sloan Kettering. And uh, at the time Bill Bratton was the police commissioner. And I remember Bratton had come, was walking into Sloan Kettering with his detail. And I was going in to see my sister and I looked at his detail and I'm saying, wow, how cool would that be? You know, that's got to be such a great job being around the police commissioner. It was never an option for me when I was a transit cop. That was not even an option. You were never going to be the police commissioner's security detail. And here we are now, ESU issue and YPD, good friend of mine who was a captain. Uh, Somehow he got in contact with a guy, one of the sergeants on the detail. and They were talking. They said, yeah, we're looking for people. My friend said, you know what? Got a good guy, Franco Baraducci in the issue. Why don't you give me an interview? And they gave me the interview. And two days later, they said, Franco, we want you. And, you know, Mike, I'll be honest with you. is I love the issue. But one thing about me, I was never scared to make change. Go to bed. You know, you, you never know if the grass is greener on the other side. But I was like, you know what? This is an opportunity that in my life I never thought I would have and Here I am. I have this opportunity to work for Ray Kelly. And I said, let's do it. And, yeah, it broke my heart to leave ESU, But uh, I was like, you know what? Sometimes when the opportunity knocks, you got to take advantage of it. And I I did. Right. What's Yogi Berra? What's his old saying? When there's a fork in the road, take it. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go.
1: You took it. He's such a unique man. He'll be 81, hard to believe, in a couple months. Such a unique guy in that. You know, we really got to see the full breadth of his personality the second time. Because the first time, he wasn't commissioner that long. He was only commissioner for two years. Right. Then he went and did some cool stuff, you know, on the federal side. He ran customs for a while. The customs guys loved him. He was active with Interval. He comes back during such a critical time for the NYPD. The recovery efforts at Ground Zero are still ongoing. The city's still trying to come to grips with this awful tragedy. And, did, you know, listen, did he have his flaws? Yes, but he did a great job. Like I said, a unique guy. Being around him and seeing that personality where he was really, there was no doubt who was in charge and he exemplified that role to perfection. I think he's one of the greatest police commissioners the city's ever had. Tell
3: me about some of the more comical and just overall unique interactions with him. Once again, pinching myself, I'm walking with Ray Kelly and I'm like, this can't be real. I mean, this was not, you know, Franco Berducci, story, Queens boy, walking with Ray Kelly, basically assigned to protect this man. So, uh, after I got over that initial pinching myself and uh, you know, just in awe of the man, then you realize okay, you got a job to do, he, he, he demands certain things from you and you have to fulfill it, and uh, you learn. And I learned, and I got as, as the years went by, I got more comfortable in you know, telling him things, how to tell him things, what he expected, what he wanted from me. Um and uh, it worked, it worked and it was um, you know, how do I say it? it was a demanding job, Mike, you know Ray Kelly commands respect. I don't know if you ever met the man. No, but I hope to. when Ray Kelly walks into a room, you know it everybody wants to talk to him everybody wants to be next to him um and if not it's just everything is silent because he's the type of man that one he knows the job probably better than anybody one of the smartest men i've ever met um and just just the, that persona that marine persona that you know when you walk in the room people know you're a serious guy you're a knowledgeable guy um, and they just, you just, they just want to be around you. And, and I was, how do I say it, I was, um, uh, I learned a lot from the man uh, along with, uh, working with him. So, um, it was truly an honor to work for Ray Kelly. Um, how many, how many police commissioners have heads of states that want to go visit him? Yeah. So that tells you a lot about the man.
1: No, of course. And I think one of the things about him is that he understood emergency service so well because he was a captain at ESU. He, was, he, he had previously been in ESU himself. And, you know, one of the more touching things I think I've seen, there's a photo of him. He was one of the people that helped carry out Mike Curtin when they
3: found Mike in the rubble of the trade center. He was one of the guys carrying him out. Curtin. Another, yeah. Mike Curtin was another great guy. I love that guy, Mike Curtin, too. I mean, it's just a bunch of great guys. It's true. Yeah, absolutely.
1: One thing about Ray... And I mentioned this off here, and I want to ask you about it now. He could throw down in that kitchen, man. He knew how to cook for his detail, and he made sure that you guys ate good. So tell me about, you know, getting some of those Ray Kelly specials.
3: Well, you know what? Um, I'm just going to say I I, I agree with that, okay? (laughs) Yes, Yes. that is something that, you know – he, he was very skilled, and, and the one thing I will say that uh, he was very good to my mom. He took a liking to my mom, and one of the things he had asked me was, you know, does your mom have a meatball recipe? <laughs> and I had given it to him, and uh, supposedly he uh, – he – I say he, he He cooked the meatballs that my mom – you know, the recipe she had given him, and uh, supposedly everybody loved it. So – but uh, – yeah, he's got skills. The man, I'll tell you, he's, he's, he's got a lot of skills, you know. What, just That's not, not police commissioner. He's just he, – the, the man is a very talented man. You know? yeah. Like I said, he, you, know, being, you know, being next to a guy like that for nine years, you, you kind like of like an the guy, the knowledge, the, the, the way he can absorb things and, uh, you know, make decisions and stuff like that. So um, that was definitely a highlight of my career in the police department. You know, and, and I'll tell you something, I I was very much educated by him, too. A lot of my success in my past life now with my business is probably attributed to a lot of things I've learned from him or some of the traits I've picked up from, from Ray Kelly. So, you know, I'm grateful for that, too. So, Ray, listen, Ray, we know some of the
1: same people. You know Kevin berry I know Kevin berry You know Franco Berarducci. I know Franco Berarducci. Come on the show, Ray. Come, what are you waiting for? Come on the freaking show. So hopefully I can get Commissioner Kelly. If anybody out there knows the man well enough and has his number, tell him Mike Colon's looking for him. So hopefully he can be on. I guess I'll ask you before we get to the concluding segment The hours flown by with you, 2012 is when you retired. I mean, certain guys leave the job and, and you're kind of seeing this now where it's, man, it's just too tough out here. This sucks. And, and it's sad to see them go that way, but they don't really have much of a choice. Other guys leave saying, you know what? I accomplished everything I set out to. I had a great run. It's just time to go, you know, time to move on to the next thing. I imagine that that was your case. You had a great run in ESU, a great run in his detail. You probably, even though I'm sure it was bittersweet, it always is when you leave something you love. That last day, for all the right reasons, when you left as a retired, newly retired cop, you must have left one police plaza, one very happy man.
4: You know,
3: uh I used to ask somebody, some of the old times, how do you know when's the right time to leave? And they'll say, "You'll know. You'll wake up one morning and you'll know." And I was like, "Ah, oh, yeah, you know, that, they're full of it." Um, I had a place in the Jersey Shore. I woke up one morning. It was, I think, it was a Saturday, and uh, it was a gorgeous day. And I'm driving back up north. And I'm like, "This is crazy. I want to be here in the shore. It was beautiful. What am I doing?" Blah blah blah. I got 28 years, and. um, that was a Saturday. That Monday I went to the pension section and I spoke to them and they gave me my numbers and I said, you know what? It's time. And trust me, it, I, I you know, it was, it was hard to walk away from Commissioner Kelly. You know, the guy was great to me, great to my family. Um, I, I enjoyed being around the man, you know, but something like the old time said, you'll know, something clicked in and said, you know what? I've, I've, done everything I can on this job, you know, to go back to patrol, say when Ray Kelly left the job and now I stayed on and say I went back to patrol, you know, you can never, you you can never hit that high point again once you're walking around with this man, you know, Uh, and I, I and working with Commissioner Kelly's detail, you saw a different side of the job that patrol guys will never know and see. So basically, yes, I kind of did it all. I went full circle. And that weekend when I left the shore, I'm like, you know what? I just want to keep hanging out on the shore and enjoying life and maybe do something myself. Mm-hmm. That made it easy. And I'll tell you something, Mike, no regrets. Never said anything like, you know, do I miss the people in the job? Absolutely. But not where it's like I'm depressed or anything like that. It's just that I, it was such a great career. You know, they say, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. Guess what? I never worked a day in my life on that job. It was just an awesome experience. So, yeah.
1: Magic carpet ride. Magic carpet ride.
3: Yes. Let me tell you something. For someone who had no access to any, any, you know, I didn't know anybody in a job that could push me to go here or go there or whatever. Just hard work. Perseverance. You know, be honest with yourself. And, uh, yeah, it was a great ride. I mean, it was an awesome ride. You know, the job, one of the greatest jobs, one of the greatest jobs in the world, and the greatest guys that work on that job. Mm -hmm. I agree. That brings us to the concluding segment
1: now. It is time for the rapid fire. Five hit and run questions from me. Five hit and run answers from you. You can say pass if you want. Are you ready? Yes, sir. All right. First, and you can't say the hearse tool because too many people say this.
3: Uh, Favorite yeah. tool on the rescue truck. Well, you know what? I'm going to tell you the hearse tool, but then also the airbag—the airbag, the airbag oh. that we use to jack up the trains. You know, it's not as simple as people look would would think using that tool. But it was—it was. I mean, it's amazing to watch that airbag lift this train. So yes, the airbag and the hearse tool. All
1: right. Second, and
3: you kind of touched on it, but you can expand that and include some other
1: things too. Best advice anyone ever gave you.
3: Best advice was when I worked for Con Edison and an old time it came to me is, Franco, you need, you got to go. You got to leave this job and go to the NYPD. i go to the transit police. And you know what? The man was 100% right. Third, and if this is not G-rated, you
1: can, you can say pass. Funniest call you ever responded to.
3: So, you know, Mike, our calls, most of our calls were not funny calls. But th- what happened was we had a guy that was on an elevated train and was threatening to jump. And we had inflated the airbag. And I don't know if you ever saw how that airbag op- operates. It's got handles. It's huge. It's about two stories high. It's got handles. And you can actually bounce it and move it so that you can get it on the, the location where the person is. You know, at that time, I was working out. I'm bouncing the bag. My pawn was on the other side. I didn't realize as I'm bouncing, I'm dragging him. And he's yelling at me stop, stop, you're dragging me. It was just, you had to be at the moment watching me drag my partner as I'm bouncing the bag to get it underneath the guy. Uh, fortunately, he never jumped. We got him. We apprehended him and stuff like that. But it was just, you know, we he was so pissed at me that I was dragging him with the bag. It was just, it, it, if you would at that moment, it was comical. No, and four truck has that air pack, I think stuff. Yes. I, I, Sam Katz wrote that
1: book anytime, anywhere, and he mentioned that John Coglin on jumper jobs, if they were close enough to the area where uh, you know it was needed, they'd help other trucks with that bag.
3: Oh well, well yeah, yeah, I mean, because not every, not every issue truck has that bag. So we was yeah. I actually had two people jump into that bag. So. Mm.
1: Yeah, it it helps jumpers up to about thirty feet. It's kinda like TCVs. Only certain trucks have the T C V surge. Only certain Correct. trucks have the uh they were
3: placed logistically, so it'd be close enough to, to wherever you know they were needed. Right. And of course. Fourth favorite bar restaurant, or even Delhi, New York City. There's a there's uh there's a restaurant called Encontro in Astoria Queens, which is probably one of the top rated um restaurants and the guy who owns it and chef Uh, Comes from the same town my mom came from. So the food is very similar, but it's awesome, awesome food.
1: Fifth and finally, knowing what you know now, both as a businessman and retired police officer, if you can go back in time and give advice to a younger version of yourself, what would you tell a young Franco Berarducci?
3: Do follow your heart and do what you want to do. You know, uh, when I got into Con Edison, it was something that the family wanted me to do. Um, but I followed my heart and I listened to advice and I went to the police department and no regrets at all. And, you know, sometimes people get stuck in these positions where they feel secure and safe and they're just scared to take that step and put their foot in the water and do it, do it. Especially if you're a young person where you have the opportunity, if it doesn't work out, you have the opportunity to move on. I say, take that chance when you're young.
1: Thank you, Franco. Stick around. Don't sign off yet. We'll say goodbye off the air. Before I say goodbye to the audience, any shout outs you want to give?
3: Just to all the issue guys who I worked with in the past, I'm telling you something, I get the chills when I remember some of the jobs, you know, the guys went in there putting their, their lives, you know, in peril. And you know what? People don't see that and hear about it too much. I saw it firsthand great guys, great cops
1: absolutely i concur well i'll say goodbye to the audience now and i'll uh, advertise the next upcoming show with somebody you work with franco jay Drisco, john latanzio jeff dito christian williams patty pogan of course joe malika robert deal uh, Stu Kelsall, who's – Stu, really, go to bed. It's almost 2 o'clock in the morning in London. I appreciate you staying up that long. The ageless wonder of VSU, Steven Stefanakis, who will never retire. Billy Kennedy, uh, Rick Martinez, Billy Ryan retired out of the Arson Explosion Squad. Mickey Mantle – no, not that Mickey Mantle. Scotty Wacker retired out of the housing police. So uh, thank you guys for tuning in tonight. Coming up next on the Mike New Haven Podcast – Volume 17 of the e Man inside the NYPD's emergency service unit, somebody who's also done pretty well for, him, for himself in the business side of things post-NYPD, John Bushing. He'll be here. John Bushing, other good man. Looking forward to speaking with Johnny. And, of course, I'll get back to the best of the bravest interviews with the FDNY's Elite next Friday with Ray McCormack. I believe I'm going to try to confirm it with him. Ray was involved in the iconic roof rope rescue with Kevin Shea and, and the late uh, Patty Brown of uh, Rescue One in 1991 in uh, Manhattan. So that was a pretty cool job. Uh, we'll talk about it when Ray hopefully comes on next week. So John Bushing for the E-Men inside the NYPD's emergency service unit. Retired FDNY Lieutenant Ray McCormack for the best and bravest. In the meantime, this has been volume 16 of the E-Men inside the NYPD's emergency service unit. On behalf of retired e Man Franco Berarducci, Mike Colon, we will see you next time. And as the E-Men like to say, anytime, baby, take care. Take care, Mike.
0: Baby, look at me. Mama love you. And I know you ain't no little boy no more But you'll always be my baby It seems like only yesterday I was holding you in my arms And I look at you now, a big man But I worry about you I worry about you all the time Hanging out on the corner all times of night with the cruel people Baby, that ain't nothing but trouble I always taught you that you could have whatever you dream well, I want you to hold on to that dream, baby Hold on to it real tight Cause the sky's
4: the limit Good evening, ladies and gentlemen How's everybody doing tonight? I'd like to welcome to the stage The lyrically acclaimed Hop. I like this young man Because when he came out, he came out with the phrase He went from ashy to classy <laughs> All right. I like that. All right. So everybody in the house, give a warm uh. round of applause for the notorious BIG. <laughs> the notorious BIG, ladies and gentlemen, give it up for him, y'all. Uh. i A never been as broke as me. I like that. When I was young, I had to pay leads. Besides that, the pinstripes and the gray, uh-huh. the one I wore on Mondays and Wednesdays. Uh-huh. I'm sewing tigers on my shirt, and alligators uh-huh. You wanna see the inside, i see you later Here come the drama, oh, that's that with the fake uh-huh. Wow, why you punch me in my face? Stay in your place, play your position Here uh-huh. come my intuition, uh-huh. go in this pocket Rob him while his friends watch That's that F- clock uh-huh. Here comes respect, This crew's your crew Or they might be next, look at they man eye Big men, they never try, so we roll with them. Uh-huh. Stole with them, I mean loyalty Put me milks at lunch The milks with chocolate The cookies Watercrunch the Oscars And blue and white dust me. Ask you, know you keep on Just keep on pressing on Sky is the
0: limit.
4: As long as I got stuff from most of them soft Even when I was wrong, I got my point across They depicted the me the boss Of course, my orange box cut to make the world go round For uh-huh. yeah. some, my homegirls now Start stacking, dabbled in packing Nickname Medina, make the scene of From gym class to in glass, pass off a global The only f with a mobile Can't you see like total Getting larger and wasted taste Ain't no telling where the spelling is heavy. Just in case, keep a shell at the tip of your melon. Clear the space. Your brain was a terrible thing to waste. 88 on gates, snatch an issue nameplate. Smoking uh. with Real life begin to kill well, well, us. Praying God forgive us for being sinners, Help us you. out. Sky is the limit, and you know that you keep on, just keep on pressing
0: on. Sky is the limit, and know that you can what you
4: the enterprise and i ain't have to be in school by 10. i then began to encounter with my counter parts of how to burn the block apart break it down into sections by these selections some use pipes Others use injections, sarin so, so separately uh-huh. Frank the deputy, uh-huh. quick to grab my smith and wh- Like my truth was missing uh-huh. To protect my position, my corner, my layer uh-huh. While we out here, say the hustler's prayer If the game shakes me or breaks me I hope it makes me a better man uh-huh. Take a better sting, put money in my mom's hand Get my daughter this college plan So she don't need no man Stay uh-huh. far from timid, only make moves when your heart's in it And live the phrase, sky's the limit Limit, limit Oh, Trump, your I do on top.